I remember people when I was at Davidson as an assistant, they would always question, why are you running against Duke? You know, Duke is, they're so athletic. And, and I was like, we can't not run against Duke. You know, if our point guards walk it up, they got some ball hawks at half court slapping the floor in their jock right away. We're not running offense. Our only chance was to go north and south and get them on their heels. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome from one of college basketball's top Division III men's programs, Swarthmore College head coach, Landry Kosmalski. Coach Kosmalski is here today to discuss the value of a hard warm-up, learning under Bob McKillop, spacing and offensive actions with non-shooting bigs, and we talk energy plays and offensive alignments during the always fun start, sub, or sit. We are excited to have recently launched Slapping Glass Plus, our coaching and leadership hub consisting of Slapping Glass TV, the premium Sunday morning newsletter, our private Coach's Corner community, monthly Q&A and clinics, and more. For more information, please visit slappingglass.com. We hope to see you there. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Landry Kosmalski. We want to start, I guess, in what we think might be an interesting place to sort of lead into culture and how you, you know, view sort of building a program. And that's with pregame warmups and your thoughts on the way that a team should warm up for any game that, you know, doesn't matter, big game or, or preseason game and sort of your thoughts on that whole process and how you get you guys ready to come out and play. You know, if you talk about culture, I think you're talking about for us anyway, wanting to be excellent you know, in everything we do. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to go jack around in warmups and then think you're going to be ready for the game. So if we're going to practice really hard and we want to perform well in the games, the warmups are a big part of that, you know, to be excellent at all times. So, um, and also obviously warmups get you really physically and mentally prepared to play the game. So we've tried to use it to our advantage. We break the game into, you've probably heard this from some Davidson people in the past, but we break the game into 10 rounds. So we've started calling warmups round zero. Like before we go out, we're like, hey, you know, we, let's have a good round zero. And that's the way that we start talking. We don't want to just get in the game and uh, have quiet voices. We want to be, already be talking. But also, I think there's a fine line. I've heard a lot of coaches talk about it in the past. Uh, you know, we're not out there an hour and a half before shooting and sweating and, and getting really tired. I mean, we our guys, you know, shoot around a little bit. We come in and talk and we're usually out there at the like 28, 30 minute mark. And they go about 20 minutes and then we come in and talk one more time and they come out and we play. So I think, you know, we'd rather go like 20 to 25 hard minutes to make sure we're, we're performing at a high level, getting ourselves ready so that when the game tips off, we're, we're ready to go. And I do think it's worked in our favor. We've been really good in round one over the years, like really get out quickly. So, and I think the warmups are a big part of that. Coach, with the warmups, you mentioned getting them mentally prepared. And I think you hit on a little bit. I'm assuming it's with the talking. What does that entail? Or how do you want them talking or communicating during the warmups to get them mentally prepared? One thing our guys do, which is, you know, kind of a silly, you know, army calisthenic warm up type of thing, but they they echo each other. So 
when they first go out and they're doing the, you know, high knees and stuff like that, someone calls it out and they echo, you know, just to kind of get that connection piece going. Yeah. And we have found over the years, like I've heard them from the locker room. I'm like, wow, that's like, it does sound intimidating. And we've heard over the years from some coaches in our league that their players have commented on it. Like they're kind of looking down at us like we're a bunch of maniacs. And <laughs> I think, you know, when you talk about psychological advantage, it's like, you know, we're up one nothing before the, the game even starts. That's why we talk about it and focus on it a lot. Coach, do you want a lot of energy in warmups too? I know you talk about communication, but do you want it to be more sort of serious, prepare for the game, or do you want them to be sort of loud, energetic, kind of looser, I guess? Good question. You know, we want them to be loose, but we also want them doing game-like movements and shots. I just despise two-line layups because if you watch it, guys are shooting off balance yeah, or they're stepping into their shot from somewhere they don't normally get it, or they're walking to half court. And we want to keep them moving and get as many shots as possible that are game-like. So, you know, same with layups. I mean, and we do have to remind them three, four times a year, I'll, I'll be watching the layups and guys are missing dunks or missing layups. And, you know, we just say like, if we want to win the game, like let's practice layup the right way. So it's just, and again, we don't get on them. It's just reminders about if we want to do this right, let's, you know, make sure we're focused on it and not, which you guys know the temptation for a lot of young guys is like playing to the crowd. My girlfriend's here today. Right. I'm going to make sure I get a windmill and warmups. And, you know, we try to get rid of all that noise. How many drills then or different routines are you looking to do within the warmups and how long are you sticking on them? You know, we got a little note card we give our captains at the beginning of the year and it's kind of down. It's kind of like we do our practice. It's like, okay, from 30 to 27, we're doing this and 27 to 25 this. And I would say it's really about four to five things. The one thing I would point out to, you know, coaches listening, I think it's important to get some defense in there. That's what I was going to ask now. Yeah. You know, I think most of warmups are historically offensive. So we do some zigzag slides and they're very short. And I know players hate those, but if you never practice a defensive stance in warmups, how do you expect your guys to get down in a stance, you know, playing when the game tips off? So we fit that in along with some shooting and along with some layups and along with some, some of our motion movements to get them in the flow of what we're about to do. I'm always interested at what time do you feel is a good time to go back in to the locker room to have a quick pregame speech to then get them back out and ready to play for tip off? You know, every coach does it differently. Our setup is we want them coming in for the first talk at 38 on the clock. That's a longer talk. So we talk about eight minutes. And then by the time they all, you know, get ready, go out, they're out at about, you know, 30, 28 minutes. Uh, and then we want to come back in at 10 because we're going to talk just like at that time, like three, four minutes. And then again, they're back out at five minutes so they can get three to four more minutes. Just again, keeping the sweat, keeping the air going. Yep. You said it and it was really interesting in the beginning. You talked about 10 rounds of a game. Can you briefly go through what the different rounds are, how you look at it that way? Yeah. And I'll just preface it by saying, you know, 90% of what I'm going to say today, I've lifted from coach McKillop at Davidson. I mean, he's a master and I played for him and coached with him. And, you know, the 10 rounds was his idea, his brainchild. And it just, you know, it's really quite Buddhist in um, philosophy. I mean, it's like that, Hey, we want to win this first four minute round. Um, because sometimes I feel like your, your team, your players start looking at the clock or, you know, wondering about the result, or if you're down by 10 and we just say like, forget it, let's win this four minutes by one or two points, you know? Oh, we won that four minutes. Let's win this four minutes. And so it just kind of keeps us present is the purpose behind it. And is it broken down by like time on the clock, basically? Are the rounds or is it phases of the game? I think the D1 guys do it by the media timeouts. Okay. You know, we don't have those. So yeah, the, our, we have a coach keeping it on the bench and it's just, yeah, 20 to 16, 16 to 12. And we see where we are and if we've won that four minute segment. Coach, my last question about kind of turning it back to the culture aspect 
And I guess too, with recruiting and maybe the way you guys warm up when you have like a recruit or someone interested in your program and they come and see how you guys warm up, you know, you're not always going to get a recruit in your practice. Is it like a good barometer to see whether this guy is maybe a good fit if depending on, I mean, they go to a game and within the first 20 minutes, they see how hard you're warming, how intent you are and kind of setting the tone with guys who are going to come or prospective guys you're looking to recruit. Yeah, that's a great question, Patrick. I would say, first off, we don't get a lot of recruits to our games because they're in season. But to your point, when they come to practice, you know, maybe in October or when they come to a game and see the warm up, our whole recruiting philosophy is like we're very honest. Again, something I learned from Coach McKillop, like we feel like we have really high standards. And if guys see that on a visit or at a game in the warm ups and they don't like it, that's good for both sides. Yeah. I mean, now I, we don't have to deal with them for four years, hating life, and they don't have to come and be feel like it's drudgery. So we're very honest when we talk to them about, hey, this is going to be the hardest experience of your life. And if you want that, this is the place for you. And if you don't, you know, go somewhere else. I think that warm up piece that they can see that or if they see it in a practice as well. Quick follow up. Are you selling that it's going to be the hardest experience of their life when you talk to recruits and in, in what way, I guess? I'm going to tweak that. It's the most challenging experience okay. because our school is so academically rigorous and we have such high standards in our program that this is not, you know, for the faint of heart. It's for a certain type of person. Yeah. And again, we would rather know that before they come. So we're, we're honest about it. And we found over the years, you know, I usually give that speech when guys are sitting on the couch across from me in the office, guys that are that want it, they sit forward on the couch and they're like, basically like they can't wait. And we think they're going to, you know, they ultimately come. And then other guys like turn and look at their mom or dad and like kind of, yeah, coach, that sounds great. And we're like, they're never coming. And so again, it's a good yeah. litmus test for us. It is worth noting you've had number one ranked team in division three, a few of the past seasons. And from where you guys started when you first took over was obviously in a much different place to where it is now. The transference of what you've done is unbelievable. To Pat's point a little bit and what you said about trying to seek out the right type of guy. I mean, how much of it, is they're getting the wrong type of guys, you know, off of your radar and how quickly you're able to get them off your radar. And I guess in ways that you figure out that they're not your type of guy. That's a hard one to answer. Um, because I mean, you know, you know, where, where you are at Chapman, Dan, I mean, like the evaluation piece is so important. I, I would say it's the most important thing um, for us, the high academic schools, like, like our two schools, like a lot of it is a weeding out process, a lot of it academic. Uh, then when they clear the academic hurdle, then it's a lot of going to see, evaluate them on the court. I guess the traits then we look for, there are, you know, we've got like four buckets. It's always starts with talent. There's a talent bucket, but then the other three are the ones we feel like maybe separate us a little bit, or we want to utilize to separate us a little bit. And that's just uh, to simplify it. Basically we want smart, tough, unselfish guys. So when we're out looking, like we're looking for things that, you know, if a guy seems self-centered, you know, they're out. If they're not tough enough, they're out. Uh, if they don't have good at basketball IQ or feel, depending on the level of how bad that is, that they could be out. So sure. we're pretty particular about who we like. And as you could probably imagine, it drives our assistant coaches crazy um, <laughs> when I come knock guys out left and right. <laughs> Coach, maybe turn into to more of a, a little bit more tactical part of the game. And one of the areas that we wanted to get into with you is playing with two bigs on the floor. You know, the past seasons you've had couple of all-american caliber big men at the division three level and i know you and i have talked and those guys aren't particularly great shooters from the outside so you have guys that can really score and bang and play inside but aren't necessarily stretch the floor shooters and you've had to find ways to still have space on the floor and run uh, an efficient offense so wanted to start with sort of your learning process to 
understand how to utilize two great big men at the same time on the floor? You know, when we first spoke on the phone, I told you, I think we, we do it really well now, but that's only because for like four years, we did it really poorly. <laughs> you know, Bill Nelson was a great coach at Johns Hopkins and the way they abused our two big lineups was embarrassing, quite frankly. And it was only after watching the film of those games over the years and banging my head down the desk, you know, hundreds of times that we kind of figured it out. We got a huge assist from uh, Harry Peretta at, at Villanova, the women's coach, when he started talking to us about the five out motion. And that was what kind of got us over the hump was how to use those guys within a five out motion, which we were running four out one in and how to utilize the space better. So it, when you talk about five out motion, I can tell you about going to my first Villanova women's practice. He said, are you here for the five out? And I said, well, you know, we've got two good bigs. They can't shoot outside of three feet. And I'm thinking we'll run four out one in. And he kind of just like, patted my knee, you know, and looked at me and kind of smiled and said, okay, just watch practice, you know? And I watched and he, he came over at the end, what they were doing using the bigs as like screeners and what they were doing using the bigs as like cutters to the rim to post. He asked me after practice, he said, do you throw the ball away a lot, throwing it inside? And I said, yeah, all the time. It's one of our biggest problems. And he said, when you got them cutting in like front cutting or ball screen roll and post, you won't throw it away as much because they're not jockeying for position. And that has proven so true. Like we went from being really bad thrown inside to like, it's not even an issue anymore. So having the bigs moving perimeter inside has lowered our turnovers when throwing it into the post significantly, if not eliminated it completely. That was one of the big things we learned from him in, in evolving to the five out. Coach, I guess I'd like to say why that is and then how you, you know, work on that and passing it into those guys. I can tell I'm talking to a couple guards here. Um, I, I played big in college and we were taught at Davidson, like, you know, if, you, if you're on the block and the ball comes to your side, just about how to like bang into your guy, you know, chest to chest and then turn and move your feet, keep them on your back. It's a great technique, but it does lead to you being a little off balance as a post player. Um, it leads to your guy fighting harder to get around. And again, you, and you guys know, like if you're throwing it in and the bigs leaning the wrong way, now it's a turnover. Or if their guy's fighting really hard to dance around in the post, they'll sometimes step around at the last second and, and get it and steal it. But when you're cutting in and out, usually that defender's not in that position to fight you like that. And you can still, by again, cutting from outside to in, you can still catch it pretty deep and get good position. And if I could quickly follow up then, yes, uh, we are both guards over here. Uh, <laughs> so, but how do you teach your guards to enter it to the post? Are you outside hand, bounce pass, log oh, pass? I mean, what's, what's the preference? Our players are going to laugh that you said bounce pass because we don't allow <laughs> bounce passes at all in our team. Sometimes into the post, but generally I despise bounce passes. So okay. really good question though. We, we teach them to fire it at their head. And that, again, Coach McKillop, if you fired at a big's head, even if he's got his arms out and everything, he's going to catch it. <laughs> he's going to get his hands in before he gets his teeth knocked out. So we don't lob it or throw it in soft. It's put it right at their head and they'll get it. And then we also okay. teach our bigs to go get the ball. We don't want them waiting for the ball or leaning away from it. We would rather have possession instead of, you know, getting position leading to the rim. I know a lot of people teach like an angle seal and you're kind of led. I actually did that as a player. That was really the only way I could score. Generally, when you got a guy on your back, we want you to go get the ball, even if you give up a foot or two to catch it off the block. And coach, why are you against the bounce pass? Well, throwing it inside. I mean, as a guy who's six, six, and you know, a lot of guys are that play inside are bigger than me. Like you have to get low to get it. I think bounce passes are slow. Um, you know, when they hit the ground, they slow down. So perimeter bounce passes are just like 
anathema in our, our program. <laughs> I mean, like, because they, they just slow, we want it to go as fast as possible to not give athletic guys an extra half second, even to take it and go dunk it on our heads. So, and I really, really don't like it on the break because I think you got a big guy running and you, it throws off your timing as opposed to just like throw it at his hands or at his face. So you can catch it in stride and dunk it. I know I'm kind of uh, on the extreme end of the spectrum in this regard. And a lot of coaches will disagree, but we just kind of gotten away from it. Yeah. I want to get now back to the, the spacing. And when they do enter the ball in the post, what are you doing with that second big man to create gravity and space? Yeah. And I'm glad you asked that. That's what we learned over the years. And this is even going back to Davidson. But when we catch like on the post, we're right off the block. The other big, wherever he is, he's going to dive opposite to what we call the hiding spot. Some people call the dunker spot or the, the lunge spot. So you get your butt on the baseline, basically heels on the baseline. And, and we like, we're really strict about that in practice. Cause if we feel if they don't get their like heels right on the baseline in practice, that in the games, they're going to end up, you know, mid post yeah. out of laziness. So we really harp on that and get them down deep. And then when they're really deep, their defender is now in a bit of a you know, has a decision to make. Am I going to come over and help or am I going to stay with my guy? And so I think the teaching point there is like when they do dive, like we teach, you got to sprint because if you sprint, your guy is occupied now. If you lollygag, that's a coach McKillop word, by the way, if you lollygag down there, your guy can kind of watch the ball, watch you. But if you sprint, he's urgent and he's, he's looking around and he'll generally kind of gravitate closer to you down in the hiding spot. So your teammate can now go to work one-on-one. Coach, teaching your two bigs to be great screeners and understanding angles and how to get guys open. And then we'll, we'll start there because obviously playing with two bigs, I'm sure there's a lot of pins and flares and things like that that they're setting for other players. So how do you go about teaching that to your bigs? That's a good question because we actually changed three or four years ago, kind of came from a background of like really head hunting when you go screen. But I'd always really admired over the years, like the Princeton teams. And in talking to some coaches that run the Princeton stuff, their philosophy is more split based, you know, where you come together and split as opposed to like really trying to hit a guy. And I did talk to Coach Pred about that. And he was more split based uh, with his women. He explained why. And when we tried it, I noticed right away it was better because when we were headhunting, when you play athletic teams, like they can really blow you up. Your guys can get fouls. Splits are more like you come together and the guard using it is going to quickly make, you know, one of three reads. And then the big is just going to go opposite where he goes or the screener. It's not always a big in our offense, but we talk a lot about like coming together and splitting quickly, but, but then a lot of responsibilities on the person taking the screen to make the correct read so that one of you gets open. You know, there's a sacrificial mentality to that. I might not get it, but I'm going to get a teammate open so we can continue to move the ball. When you have one big in a split action, are you always trying to then have the other big? I mean, is there times where then the big will just space or are you always trying to have him, hey, set a split yourself? Or how are you trying to then occupy again the defense with the second big when another big's involved in an off-ball action? I, I should have said earlier, one of the things when we went to the five out that I noticed over time, and you guys know about this better than I do, but this concept of gravity like even if the opposing coach goes, look, these guys can't shoot outside of three feet. Don't leave the paint. When you see your guy out the three, you kind of inch out toward him. Yeah. So now in the five out, if your teammate, you know, has a drive or makes a back cut, he's open. The defender is a, even a half step or a step away. So he can't come block or alter the shot. So keeping your bigs on the outside, there's that gravity yeah. pieces at play and your people who get to the rim in some form or fashion are going to have 
more opportunity, more space. When you run motion, we don't have a lot of like, if this guy's doing this, you do this. Okay. We kind of personalize it where, you know, if you're a big setting of, uh, you need to be looking to set flare screens or you need to be looking to set ball screens or ball screen slips or front cuts. I lean toward like controlling, like I like structure, but in motion, you got to let go of some of that and you can't always control what they're doing. So you try to teach them to the options and when to use them. And then they just kind of, the five guys out there kind of hopefully anyway, um, acting as one. So we don't, to answer your question, we don't have any hard and fast rules about he's doing this. Now you do this. It's not like the blocker mover stuff that's structured. It's more unstructured. Which just continuing to talk about space. I would imagine when you have these two bigs and you're sitting down for the season, looking at the offensive stuff and the other guys on the floor, what are things that you really think about when trying to still create space in the key specifically for the guards to drive into or to penetrate? If you're assuming that the two bigs defenders are going to be loaded up a lot and helping. You mentioned the key. So I'll kind of, again, it kind of all revolves around the bigs because if their defenders are sloughing off them in the paint, I told you these, you know, these four years where we were getting our brains beat in playing two bigs, what I finally figured out, I'm a bit of a slow learner, but what I finally figured out was like when our big was setting a screen and the guards guy was sticking to the guard. And and so if we curled, the big defender was right in the way, right? You know, he wasn't open. We're not, they're not guarding the big. But we were stupidly always popping our big out to three. Well, we learned over time is like, let's just like pop him back to the elbow or at the foul line to shorten the angles. And that kind of evolved into a lot of like ISOs for our big. Like if you catch at the elbow, either in that screen and, you know, uh, comeback situation or the situation we get more often, which a lot of people call us about is, is the, the handoffs. You know, we, one of the things when we were struggling with our bigs that after our season, I was watching a random 76ers playoff game and JJ Redick was just this master, like passing these non-shooters and following it mm-hmm. because their defenders were off and he would go get it. And there's no one there to help. You know, it's, it's a ball screen with the big, with an inactive dribble. I realized right away, I was like, that's what we needed. And so we added that with our bigs catching in that elbow spot or, you know, right at the foul line or in the key somewhere, we added this quick follow. And we got that a little bit, but what you get more from that is after the guard doesn't get it and he clears out, you have the big ISO right there tight to the rim. If you have four guards around him, you can space and he has all kinds of room. If the other big is in, he's going to dive to the opposite hiding spot like we talked about if he's on the opposite block. So we got a ton of ISO action. And and what it really boils down to is like kind of like used to play your best friend in the front yard. The big was like, we're just going to back you down and you can come help and we'll kick it for three. Or if you don't, we're just going to put you in the rim. And that's like 50% of our offense now. And it's like the most basic thing, but it worked because we, as you mentioned, we had two All-American big guys. (laughs) Right. Coach, just because, you know, we've personally run similar type of action with bigs at the elbows and splits and handoffs and stuff. And I find sometimes the hardest thing though is to teach these big, especially when they're freshmen, sophomores, is just the decision-making process in those spots of when to keep it, when to throw it ahead, or, you know, when to turn and face and rip and go. How do you work on that process of making them better decision makers in those situations? Great question. Because as we know, some guys need a little more help than others. Some guys are indecisive and and you got to rep it a little more. So the way we rep it is, you know, like in some kind of three-man actions with a couple of coaches out there giving them reads. So if the big has a handoff, we call it a keeper. I mean, it's basically like the spread offense in football. You know, I mean, if you're basically reading the defensive end, in this case, your big defender and if he sneaks out because he thinks you're handing it off, then you keep it and go to the rim. If the guard's open, obviously you hand it and you roll to the rim. 
Uh, if the guard's not open, you keep it. And then again, to your point, you got to teach them to let that guard clear, which takes a little patience and let that guard get the hell out of the way so that now you have some space to operate. Because we all know the worst thing is for a big to rush and some 5'11 guard, no offense to sub six foot guards out there, but some small guy comes and just takes it before the ball bounces back up. So teaching patience to big so that they have space is very important. It's part of what we practice in those little breakdown sessions. And then if I could just follow up too, the other sort of area of, I guess, gray area is, you know, a lot of times posts, they learn how to post up and have a move at the block, right? You know, up and under or, or a hook, or they're out on the perimeter and maybe a drive to the rim. But that elbow area is kind of a unique area to learn a new skill to maybe turn, face, one dribble back down. How do you work on the skill level from operating out of the elbow area? We've kind of based it on our personnel. So the guys, the two All-Americans we had, they were pretty good in that space, like either just driving it right away or driving and spinning. But we do teach some technique. Like we're not teaching them to be one-on-one players necessarily. We're saying if you have space and there's no one in the gaps because they're sticking to our shooters who are pretty good, then just go back them down. (laughs) So we do work on the technique, like put a hard dribble out there, then turn and you just back them down. So it doesn't take a lot of decisions. It's like a do what you've done your whole life, which is you're bigger than everyone. And you just kind of take a dribble and then spin and keep them on your hip. And then you go into that, those moves, you know. Coach, and how is the, if you have two bigs out there and the other big has dived to the dunker spot, how is he reacting then when the big does go one-on-one? I guess, where how is he maintaining the space when you, in this situation, let's say the big takes a dribble and starts to back down, especially from the elbow where maybe he's in the middle and not so clearly defined on a block. Generally, our bigs are doing this handoff ISO stuff at the elbows. So if he's at the left elbow, you're, you're going to dive to the right hiding spot and, and vice versa. Yeah. But, but that's a good question because we've tinkered with it in the past. I'll tell you what happens most of the time is for whatever reason, the big defender of the guy in the hiding spot generally doesn't go help. It feels like they could go block it, but they also know if I go, it's a dump and it's a dunk. Yeah. So they're kind of, you can see they're, they're a little frozen. The other thing we've talked about for teams that do help is kind of like looping the big under. You know, Mm -hmm. if our big goes middle and the guy comes to help, like looping the guy in the hiding spot back to the side, the big with the ball came from. We've tried it. I don't like it at all because now you're asking a big who I I was, you know, making fun of guards earlier. I'm going (laughs) to make fun of bigs now to like turn and throw a left-handed scoop pass. They love to try it, but it's low success rate. (laughs) So generally we just keep it simple, keeping that hiding spot. And we do practice, like if teams mess with you, how to like dump it or how to like maybe look them off and then go into your move. Okay. And if I can give you one other scenario, if the big hands it off and the guard goes and he rolls, will you have that big in the dunker? Or is he usually waiting? Is he not cutting into that dunker? And if he is, then how are you spacing him with the guard attacking and the roll? That's a good question. It's timing based. So on the handoff, if we get the handoff, it's just a two-man game. If we don't get the handoff and the guard clears, again, we've taught that big. I mean, he's going to hold it for like two, three seconds till we get in our spot. So now he's holding it. The guard's clearing. Now the other big is diving. Okay. So it has to do with that. The big has to read timing and do it at the right time. Coach, I would imagine this would be a good problem that you would welcome. But if you get another four or five All-American type or really good bigs, that can shoot it, that can space to the perimeter, as opposed to the two you had that could not, would any of these actions change for you? Or would you sort of just continue the same type of concepts, but now they can obviously step out and make a shot? It's almost like you guys have been 
like listening on my phone calls with our, with our coaching staff. This is what I've been thinking about the whole pandemic because we do have some good bigs and we do have some good young bigs that can shoot it. So if I've learned anything as a head coach is that you got to adjust your personnel. So definitely been thinking about that during the pandemic and this season we had off. I don't have great answers yet. We like our system, but we're definitely open to tweaking it based on personnel. So we're going to keep doing what we're doing, but I think we got some good tweaks coming down the pipe that are going to utilize those guys shooting ability more. And I would share them, except I'm not really positive what they're going to be. I have some ideas, but yep. we're going to have to get in practice and see how, how well they're shooting the ball. Were there any teams or coaches you were watching or looking at, I guess, for some ideas or that would maybe run similar sets or situations that you're hoping to have with a, a shooting big? Well, you know, our, our secondary motion system is not a lot of people use it. So I mean, we definitely get ideas from other teams, but uh, generally we just try to keep that system and then tweak it. So over time, I've learned like there's not a ton of options. So it's like, oh, well, we're now we're going to go to this with these bigs. You know, I mean, it, it's not wholesale changes. Okay. You know, like something as simple as like setting a flare and your defender helping as our guard maybe curls the flare instead of keeping those guys at the elbow, which we did for those guys that weren't good shooters outside of the paint. Now we're going to pop them and they're going to be open for three. So that's just a small yeah. tweak. Yeah. You know, same system, but just these guys do different things because they have different skill sets. Coach, kind of moving more, you mentioned secondary break and whatnot. We'd like to talk a little bit about transition offense with you and some thoughts that you have on that whole concept, either with your current roster, you know, how you're looking at now or, or with what you guys ran with the two bigs and, and just moving the ball early in the possession. With pushing the ball, I think it starts with philosophy. I, th I think a lot of coaches say, you know, I just want to play faster. And our philosophy is we're going to push to get a, a shot in the first seven seconds if it's one of the five shots we've practiced. Because when you run secondary, you run into spots, you run lanes. We have this, you know, again, four to five shots we practice every day. If we get those, you know, boom, you know, we're going to take them in the first seven seconds. But the second part of the philosophy is actually, I think, the more important piece. And it's we're running to put the defense on its heels. We want the defense, you know, physically and psychologically on their heels, because then I think you run better offense for the next, you know, 20 seconds of the shot clock. I remember people when I was at Davidson as an assistant, they would always question, why are you running against Duke? You know, Duke is, they're so athletic. And, and I was like, we can't not run against Duke. You know, if our point guards walk it up against these, they got some, you know, ball hawks at half court slapping the floor in their jock right away. We're not running offense. Our only chance was to go north and south and get them on their heels. It's kind of like a football philosophy. I mean, cornerbacks, these guys can go east and west, just like the guys in basketball, the athletes can go east and west. But turning and running, that's you got to get them going front, forward and backwards, I think. So we're a real north-south philosophy team. Coach, quickly, just because you teased us with it, what are the five shots that you'll take early in the shot clock? Our big at the front rim, you know, ceiling and posting. Uh, we got the point guard getting in what we call the crack. You know, the big is ceiling and now the point guard's in the crack. We got our wings slashing if we pitch it ahead. We can do a wing three, although we don't get those as much anymore. And then if we have the right personnel, we can get a top of the key, like trail three. Okay. Coach, just to go back to the transition stuff, what are the actions you're looking for early on the break to get into right away to get a great shot? If it's not those early, the five early shots I just mentioned, then it's like, then it becomes, because we're a motion team, it becomes about flow. And that's a big word in our system is like, 
And I, I still can laugh thinking back to the times at Davidson when a freshman point guard would, you know, once he made a pass, he would like, go get it, like set it up. And coach McKillop would stop it and be like, set it up. <laughs> like, you know, like this is what the point guard has done his whole life. You know, they always say, go get the ball, set it up. So he's thinking he's doing the right thing. And coaches would say, you know, and, and we say, we don't want the defense to get a breather. You know, we're just, we're going, we're, we want to keep going and keep them on their heels. We think that we're then the aggressors and we can run better offense. So I think then a lot of it is about how do we flow out of that secondary into our motion? And we just have a few really basic ways we do that to get to motion. And, you know, it really just all revolves around the trailer, how he's guarded. Okay. No calls or anything, just reads. As far as when you may say reading the defense and playing through the trail, can you just elaborate on that? If the trailer's open, we throw it to him and we we're in, you know, our secondary swing to motion. If he's denied, he's going to go screen away. I, you know, I think a lot of teams would like, he's going to dance and try to get open. And again, now your yeah. momentum is stopped. Uh, so we just like keep going away to screen. And then the other one, he reads not his own man really, but like the point guards defender. Like if they're really hawking the point guard and giving him trouble, then we'll go right into a ball screen. Okay. So we just read those quickly. All the other guys are watching the trailer and then they know what to do next. And then once we get out of that, we're right into motion. Coach, with some of the motion concepts or with the bigs, uh, I think you and I talked a little bit about trying to keep teams off balance with the actions in the secondary break or maybe throwing them a curveball. You know, are those things that you are from the bench? Let's say you want to do something a little different. Are you letting them just read it all the time or will you ever make a call or in a timeout say, hey, we're going to try this now to see if you can get something a little different in the break? Yeah, I mentioned the curveball to you on the phone because, again, it's painful to look back and say we just ran secondary into the ground. And, you know, we had a two-time All-American point guard in Cam Wiley, and I feel so bad how he was forced to run secondary like almost every play because he was wearing himself out. The curveball we decided on was like one of the things that people got good at stopping secondary was like how they guarded that rim runner. When we didn't get anything out of that, we would have to flow all the time. And so what we wanted to do was take that rim runner away to give a different look. It can be a call, but it can also be make miss. Like we might do different things. It can be what we do with four guards as opposed to two bigs, but we just run our curveball is just a five out break and we just run. And, you know, some people would say, well, and, and there's no spots. I mean, anyone can run to the corners, anyone can run to the wings, but we bring it up the middle. A lot of people would say, well, you got a non-shooting big at the wing. He's you know, he's open, his guy's in the gap. You can't drive it. And that's true. I would like for the point guard to drive it every time, but if the big is open and we can make the first pass easy, great. Because sometimes in secondary, the first pass being easy is difficult. So if we have that curveball and we can now make first pass easy and just start flowing right away out of this five-out break, I feel like it gives us, a, again, it's a curveball. It's a different look. Yeah. What we found is like the point guard's defender who kind of sometimes thinks he has that rim runner help, uh, defender help back there. You know, he's like, oh, I can get beat. There's someone back there. Now there's no one there. It keeps them on their toes a little bit. Coach. Do you have any like staying the ball side actions other than the drag screen? But if, if you can't get the drag, if you don't want to run the drag screen, are you always looking to get the ball to the second side? Or are there any situations, you know, obviously with the five where maybe the ball point guard throws it ahead, but there's no real drive or just nothing materializes. I guess, how are you looking then to get into a flow that way? When we have that five out break, I should have said this. Uh, we don't flow to motion. We flow to like a cutting game. Okay. And again, that's another curveball. Sometimes in motion, teams that play us a lot or teams that have athletes, our split action will get us bogged down. They'll, they'll blow it up. They'll read it. They just know how to play against it. So now we've got this cutting game where there are no screens. So we just have a little bit different flow out of that. Coach, 
I'm always interested with a team that's very disciplined, that has great players and play within a system, but then teaching the balance of when to maybe break out of the system to get a shot on their own or types of shots or types of situations where you're comfortable with an all-American point guard or your bigs kind of not going off script, but just understanding when to take advantage and then when to keep kind of playing through uh, more of a structure. You guys are good, man. You guys are good. This is all the stuff that we grapple with. When I was at Davidson as an assistant, I scouted North Carolina one year and I was just blown away. They had Hansborough and they were running all that stuff they do, you know, the diagonal back screens to get them to block or the staggers and they were great. And then, you know, I watched them a few years later. I'm like, they're not doing anything. <laughs> at first I was like really judgmental about that. And then as we got better players over the years, I was like, we got to let these dudes play, you know, like we can't have that much structure. So in some ways we have a lot of structure and having this break in motion, but we also like tell our guys, you have personal strengths. We want you to use them. We want you to use them within the flow. If you're a motion team and a guy just decides to break it down and dribble, that destroys all motion rhythm. So we just tell them like, Hey, here are times when you're going to be open for a drive, you know, in transition in, you know, when the side is emptied out on a swing. And it, that is very hard for first year guys, like talented guys who come in and they're just dribbling right into traffic or they're dribbling and disrupting the motion rhythm. Usually within five or six games, they figured out like, oh, I'm going to have all kinds of opportunities on these flare screens, on these back doors, on these wing slashes, on transition slashes and or, or kickouts in three. I mean, they have a ton of opportunity. They just have to learn when to utilize them. Um, but then yeah. we do tend to play to strengths then with our sets, you know, like our quick hitters. Then we're like, okay, we got this guy that's good off the bounce. Let's just ISO him here and let him do what he's good at. Coach, on that point, how would you solve it if there's times when it's in the motion, the ball isn't maybe getting to a matchup you want or your All-American guy just isn't getting the touches? Will you then, I'm assuming that's when you will call the sets, but staying within the motion framework, is there anything then you'll kind of hope your guys figure it out or are you just going to straight up just tell them? If you talk to any motion person, that is the question we're trying to answer. Yeah. Because motion is your strength is that it's very egalitarian. And if, if you're good, you have five guys out there that can all take care of it. But then you get in the last three minutes of the game and like probably the weakest guy is taking <laughs> on the court ends up taking the shot. Yeah. It's hard because we push the ball. We want to push for 40 minutes. So we don't ever want to stop it and call a play. We, we call plays on dead balls. We don't want to stop the, the push. That's the most important thing to us. So that's tricky. I mean, it, it's generally at the end of games, it, usually the game is slowed down enough where you can call plays and get it to the right guys. But within motion, that's a little bit of a crapshoot. And I haven't talked to any motion people who have a good answer for that. Yeah, Because you don't want to scrap the thing you're best at in the last four minutes of the game, which for us is pushing and flowing. But you also want your top one or two dudes shooting the ball. It's tricky. It brings up another kind of topic too. Within those last four minutes, I mean, how are you getting those guys to stay with the motion, stay with the pace and not let the other team maybe slow you down or bog you down to where you have to be set reliant? I think when you get in the latter part of the second half, it kind of, I've learned over time, it comes down to like, you get to this point where you're like, are you going to sub to keep the pace up? Or are you going to use your timeouts to keep these guys in the game? It, it just depends on how the game's going and how your rotation is playing. I generally land on like, let's just keep subbing and keep going. We're kind of, we have refs coming over during the games. The officials come over and say, these are like hockey subs, you know, it's like line changes. And because <laughs> we like to sub and we like to go fast and we generally play nine or 10 guys. So, you know, I would say the last 10 minutes of the game, you got a decision to make is, are we going to call timeouts so that the guys who are playing well stay in and keep the push up, or are we going to sub? And we have a high level of trust with our guys. So we generally keep subbing and keep pushing. But when you do run motion, motion 
as we've been talking about it, I should have said from the beginning, I mean, it takes a ton of energy. Yeah. I mean, cutting and, and it takes a lot of mental energy because you're making a lot of decisions. So a lot of times late game, your guys, you do get a little stagnant. I think that's where you have maybe some other options. Like uh, you mentioned our curveball earlier, Dan, we got a little bit of a change up too that we can kind of flow to out of our secondary break if we don't have a good push that ends up being just another entry to motion, but it, it's something that the guys don't have to think about as much that they can just do some motion movements, but within kind of some structure where they don't have to make as many decisions or maybe not as many cuts. Yeah. Again, those two last questions you asked me, I, I still don't really have the correct answer for. Well, coach, this has been uh, unbelievable yeah. so far. Thanks for all uh, your thoughts on that stuff. We want to transition now, speaking of transition, into a segment, a game that we call start, sub, or sit. And so uh, just briefly, we'll give you three different topics, basketball topics. We'll ask you to start one, sub one, and sit one. I can tell you, I'm a little nervous about this. Start, <laughs> so, so I, I, when I listen to the podcast you sent me, and I hear coaches stumbling and you know want qualifying answers. And I'm just like, I, I'm going to try to be decisive, but it might be tricky. Okay, well. we like to hear. <laughs> we'll start with a, start with an easy one for you, just more of a philosophical one. So these are uh, energy plays that you can make on the defensive side of the ball. So start, sub, sit, a steal, a charge, or a block shot. Uh, I laughed when you said steal because we're generally bottom 10 in the country in steals. We don't force <laughs> okay. a lot of turnovers. So probably going to sit that one. Okay. Uh, you know what? I'm actually, I'm going to sit the charge because I think it's kind of moving out of our game. I think it's kind of getting harder to get the call and harder to take on good athletes. So I'm going to sit the charge. I'm going to sub the steal. And I'm going to take the block. We, we've been really good at blocks uh, over the years, like nationally, like, you know, number one, number two in the country. And besides stopping the other team and keeping their field goal percentage low, it does, as you know, it can initiate the break and get you going, get you some offense. Coach, a follow-up on that. Some interesting things you said there. The first one is with the block. Do you practice or do you teach guys how to block shots? Oh God, no. I, <laughs> we, we just got really fortunate. I mean, we had three guys over the last six years that were just elite and they were good blockers, but even better, they were alterers. I mean, they just altered everything. And we took, people would call us and say, oh, you're, you're good around field goal percentage D around the rim. And I don't even know where they got that stat. Like, you know, what, what are you techniques you teaching? And I, we're not teaching anything. We got these three dudes and they're just cleaning up everything. So I do think you can, if a guy's not doing it aggressively enough, I think you can get him in practice and kind of like set him up for some stuff to get it in his top of mind. Yeah. Uh, but generally we just had three guys that were really, really good at it. Do you prefer the block shot to come from off the ball or do you want guys that are guarding the ball to try to block a shot or would you prefer them to stay straight up? What's a preference there? Definitely off the ball. Okay. Uh, guys, I think when you start teaching guys on the ball to block the shot, I think they're leaving their feet, you know. Sure like popcorn, uh, you know, every time you get a chance. So we, we tend to discourage that. So definitely uh, off the ball help would be my preference. Okay. You mentioned being low in steals. And I'm wondering if that is because of your overall defensive philosophy, you don't think it's worth it or you just didn't, on the flip side, you had guys that could block shots. And on the other side, you just didn't have guys that were active in lanes. Or is that something you just feel is not worth it to work on? No, I, I wish we were first in the country in steals. I, I think it's more about philosophy in that with our personnel, we have found over time, it's better for us to be solid than it is to be, you know, maybe go for home runs, like, you know, go for steals, be solid with our scouting report defense over the years. I mean, I've learned this time and time again at Swarthmore, that's best for us for whatever reason. 
And, uh, you know, again, sometimes our assistant coach comes to me, he's like, I think we could, you know, trap. And I was like, I, I hear you. I thought that at one point, and, but this is what works for us. Although saying that I do think we can be better at it. We can find some opportunities to create some turnovers for sure. Sure. Okay. All right, coach, my start subsit in terms of having a great team defense, the type of players you would want, I guess the traits you would look for physicality, length, or quickness. That's a tough one. When it comes to physicality, I maybe should have mentioned this earlier. You're talking to the guy who, when I graduated from Davidson, I had more career fouls than anyone in (laughs) the storied history of Davidson basketball. So I tend to recruit a bunch of hackers because we all have our biases. So the physicality, when you said it, I was going to be like, oh, I'm starting that one. But then you talked length and quickness, and I'm probably going to start quickness mainly because it's an area we need to get better at in terms of keeping people in front of us and not giving up dribble penetration. Length is a close second because we all know how important that is to take away passing angles and you know altering shots at the rim. And I guess physicality third, I would sit physicality, but that is, that's really tough to say. I mean, it's almost blasphemous <laughs> to utter those words, but that's what I got to go with. Yeah. <laughs> well, the follow-up, because yeah, in doing our research, we know you have a very physical team. So how do you teach physicality, but not fouling? Going back to recruiting, you know, that toughness component, the physical piece, especially for big guys is it's mandatory. You guys know this. I mean, it, you know, sometimes your, your assistants will come and go, this guy can stretch the court. He's six, six and he, you know, he can shoot and he's just talented. And I'm like, he won't hit a soul out there to box out. Like there's no way we're taking him, you know? So I think that comes through recruiting. And then we do, I mean, we just kind of have physical practices. And it's something I learned from coach McKillop just about how to be physical. We have learned over the years how to be smart, physical, uh, how to be smarter about it. You know, you can do stuff with like towels, you know, holding the towels around your, your neck, just, just yeah. so they don't play with their hands. We really have our coaches watch our bigs when we practice post D because a lot of guys get tired or lazy and they grab the hip. So we just really watch it. But at the same time, I'd rather err on the side of being more aggressive. And we generally do foul more than most. And, and it hurts us at times. But as we all know, too, I, I think a lot of times at some point, the referees stop calling it. it. We don't play with that strategy, but I think being overly physical is to your advantage. Absolutely. Coach, this is um, start, sub, sit. If you could be the best team in your conference at one of these three statistical categories. So being the best offensive rebounding team in your conference, being the team with the best assist to turnover ratio, or being the best three-point field goal shooting percentage team. Maybe you've been all three of these, <laughs> I'm sure before, but yeah, those are three that were pretty good, except the well, the one which I'll sit, which would be assist to turnover. Like my first few years, we turned it over. We had to be top five in the country, and um, we finally figured out how to coach it a little better in practice, which has helped us. But I'll sit assist to turnover. I'm going to start O rebound again. You're talking to a guy who was a four man in college, and I couldn't score if I didn't have a free lane, and so that's how I made a living. And our teams have been really good at that. Oh, rebounding. And then uh, three-point field goal percentage, I, I would sub. Although, I mean, we're generally pretty good and I like that. And we recruit shooters. I like the O rebound. I'd like to win that crown a little bit more than the others. You mentioned that you've gotten better at coaching the kind of the, the assists or turnovers in practice. And I know we mentioned earlier that, you know, you learn if you're cutting the bigs, that solves a lot of it. But what other ways are you coaching in practice these, you know, the turnovers and the assists? Two main things we've done that have helped. And first, again, you know, the first three or four years, your head is spinning. You're trying to just 
get better. And all of a sudden you get in the game, you turn over 17, 18 times and you're like, what are we doing wrong? Well, we never talked about it in practice, you know? And, and then when it got bad, we would just yell. I don't think that's really teaching. So what we've done now, we got something, um, I think we got from Xavier men's team a few years back that they use these turnover cards. So it's a visual for the guys and, and we have our manager tape them on the, the scorers table. So when we get one, they flip it over one, the team has one for the practice. And we usually say, when we get to eight, we're going to stop practice and we got a consequence. So they're just kind of looking over there. It just, it keeps it top of mind. And then the other thing we do, which we added maybe two years ago, which I think is the best way to limit turnovers. Again, just to keep it as an area of focus is as soon as there's a turnover in practice, someone just like yells it out. Like usually the player is like turnover and someone just like takes off and runs like a down and back, but it's not the person who made the turnover. Okay. So the person who made the turnover now feels a little guilt and just kind of a, a nice reminder, a gentle reminder to take better care of the ball and value it because his teammate had a consequence. So it's not really a punishment. It's more of a, at least that's how I justify it. It's a reminder and that they're kind of responsible to their teammates to not turn it over. Coach, I got to ask about offensive rebounding. I know you personally were a great offensive rebounder and your teams have been. How do you teach that? Do you work on that? Or or how many guys do you send? You know, what, what are the ins and outs of offensive rebounding for you? Well, I just got to say that all the Davidson guys are going to crush me if they think I'm bragging about being an offensive rebounder. So I'm just going to say I was decent. I was not great. <laughs> you said great. I said decent. Those are my words. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. You know, again, we kind of recruit. We want guys that have the toughness to crash the glass, but then we work at it. Like we call it like the gauntlet. They have to sprint from the, this is just a big drill, like a one man big drill. They're in a line. They sprint from the baseline up to the volleyball line. And as they're coming back, one coach is shooting two coaches are like banging them with blocking dummies and they have to just fight through. So they're having to run, which is hard. And they're having to come from the perimeter and then they're having to get by someone who's trying to block them out. So that's what we teach our bigs philosophy wise. I'm open to different ideas. We, we've always done like three, four and five to the glass. Mm-hmm. I've heard some coaches talk recently about maybe just designating certain guys as crashers. Even if that means you've sometimes got two and you sometimes got four, our system has worked pretty well, but I, I'm definitely intrigued by the personalization of crashing yeah. the glass. I think there's something to that. Coach, if I can ask one quick follow-up too on this is offensive rebounding and also being a five-out team. Sometimes I feel like it can feel very opposite where you got five guys on the perimeter kind of floating around. How much demanding does it take from you to get those guys to go when you have more guys potentially on the perimeter? As you were asking, it makes me think about you know, people ask me a lot, like, what did the greatest thing you learned from Coach McKillop? What most people don't know if you haven't worked with them is like, Coach McKillop never settles for anything. You know, some teams will be like, well, they're good in transition. So maybe we don't crash when we get back. He's like, we're going to crash and we're going to get back and we're going to figure it out. You know, so that point of like, we're five out, some te- coach would go, well, maybe we shouldn't get on them about crashing. It's hard. And we're just like three, four, five you go every damn time. There's no excuses. You just do it. So they don't have an out, you know, it's just like, this is what we do. We know it's challenging, but we're going to do it. So it it is, it's sometimes though, you see the guys are tired, like they've been working in motion and now they've got to crash on some quick shot and, but they're getting tired. We'll sub some guys in that'll do it. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Coach with that, with that gauntlet drill, just hearing you talk about it, I was thinking, do you put in their minds, like, are you emphasizing like having them track the ball or trying to anticipate where it's coming off? I mean, I know the drill is naturally probably instilling that in them, but are you making a point of like, hey, follow the ball or, you know, kind of see the trajectory of it at all? You know, I think the, the following the ball and seeing where it's going to come, I think that's 
I don't like to use the word innate, but like a Dennis Rodman, like he was a master, you know, like I, yeah. I, maybe, I, and I know I've heard he practiced it and we probably should teach it more. The one thing we teach is just kind of what everyone teaches is just to kind of go opposite, just play yeah. the percentages. So when our coach is shooting it, he's usually just shooting it from like inside the left wing and they're going through the gauntlet at like the right elbow and they know they don't need to run to the left side. That's, you know, you're yeah. in the 10, 15 percentile of get, chance of getting it. And likewise, teaching guys, and my dad taught me this growing up, he played in the NBA and he would watch me, you know, and say like, you're going to the baseline route and you're going there because no one's there, but you're not going to get it. You're under the backboard. It doesn't help. So we do teach our guys, like if you're coming from the wing, like really get middle, still staying on that side to play the percentages, but don't go underneath the basket. That's what a lot of people do because it's easy um, and it becomes habit and you got to break that habit. Absolutely. All right, coach. My last one for you, you got to run a set. So kind of the, the entry formation start, sub, or sit, horns entry, Iverson entry, or zipper entry? You're going to have to tell me what the Iverson entry is. Tell me that first. Iverson is where you're kind of running a wing across to the two bigs that are at the elbow, and you're running him from, let's say, the left wing across that screen to the right wing, and then entering it to him. Okay, and then that's what I thought a zipper was, so now tell me what the (laughs) zipper is. A zipper is the guard will dribble to a side, and then the big will downscreen the guard at the block for him to come out oh, yeah. and then usually they're doing a step up or. Okay. And, and I should have explained this earlier. Like I'm so bad with universal language because this Davidson family, like we have these, this crazy vernacular. So like what you said about Iverson, that's what we call a zipper, like a, like a guard coming off at a flat angle to get it on the wing. Yeah. I would definitely start the horns. I think there's a ton of possibilities out of the horns. Uh, that's where we run a lot of our sets out of. And I just think what it does is you're putting like probably usually like your three most talented offensive guys in, in these spots that are well-spaced and they have a ton of options. So I'm going to start the horns. I'm probably going to sit your version of the zipper. <laughs> There's a team in our league that does it and, and it is harder to guard and they do some stuff out of it that can mess with you. Uh, but I also think like when you're entering up top, that's you're open up the possibility of a run out. Yeah. I prefer wing entries when possible. So, you know, that's a little bit, you know, you're not giving up two. So then I would guess I would sub the, uh, the Iverson entry, which, you know, we've never done, but is I've always liked and thought about, and I saw someone doing it in the NCAA tournament that did it really well. And I kind of wrote it down as something to put in for a few of our guys. No, I'm, I'm always curious how coaches, and I mean, you hit on it with the horns, just how you think about when you're going to run a set, what the formation, how you want to get into it. This has kind of evolved over the years, going back to Davidson and now at Swarthmore, like for, again, for whatever reason, like with our personnel, that's why I don't watch European basketball. I love European basketball. I don't watch because a lot of their plays are like all this false action and then the play, then, then the real action. Yeah. We're running motion and we're sprinting the court. We're already tired, like, and teams generally deny us a lot. So like false actions, just like, you know, the second pass is there and everything's blown up. So our thing is more like, let's make a pass. Let's get it to one of our dudes who's in space and let's just let him go to work. So we really simplify. Most of our actions are some version of an isolation, but that's just because of the system we already have and the guys are already a little fatigued from it. And it's because of how teams defend us. And quite frankly, I'm just not really elaborate with plays. I'm just like a little lazy. Like we have this good guy. Let's put him at the elbow. Let's get these guys the hell out of the way and let's play some basketball, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of value in keeping it simple. Well, coach, you're off the start, sub, sit, hot seat. Thank God. All right. Good. (laughs) Those those were, those were okay though. The the one was, the one was tough with the defensive one with the physicality. That was tough. Yeah. Everything else I was, 
I had you're solid, ready for solid order. <laughs> yeah. So, well, coach, we'll, we'll ask you one more question here to close. But before we do, really thank you for your time today. This has been a lot of fun for for Pat yeah. and I. So, thanks for for going so in depth with all this stuff. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been it's been a blast. You guys do a great job. A lot of those questions were, I mean, again, it's like you're inside my head uh, in the <laughs> off season. All the stuff I think about and the you know the hard problems to solve. So I, I appreciate you guys, you know, level of expertise. It was it was a joy to be a part of. Thank you, Coach. We'll get you out of here on this. Interested to hear, you know, you've been a, a great player in college, had an overseas career, uh, and then obviously working with Davidson and now Swarthmore. What's one of the best investments that you've made in your career as a coach? Great question, and I can answer right away. Coming from playing overseas. 2004, I retired, you know, at 26 years old, there was a spot on the Davidson staff and it was, and this is crazy to think about now because then the Atlantic 10 and, you know, they have such a great program, but at the time it was an unpaid spot. You know, you you say like, I'm going to work all these crazy hours and not get paid. But for me, it wasn't, I didn't even think about it. I was like, I want to coach in college. I'm going to be able to learn from coach McKillop who's, you know, a master. And I, I did that my first year and the second year, you know, they paid me a 19,000. So my, my first two years, I, I made very little money, but I wouldn't have done it any other way. That started everything, learning from Coach McKillop and then obviously just learning how to be a college coach. That was definitely the best investment I've ever made. What are some of the main things that you've taken from Coach McKillop about winning? Like that really, the things that really stick and help win games? He's um, so detail oriented. It's about like doing the, the details and little things. And we just like, break those down in practice. We do them every day. We talk about them all the time, just with the belief that a lot of little things done well end up to big success. And he had an eye for seeing all those things. And he taught us how to see all those things. Again, that's kind of how we plan our practice. That's kind of how we teach our players. And that philosophy of like, you know, just do all these little things. And all of a sudden it's something big is a really fulfilling process to be a part of. so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter for additional insights on this podcast. Have a great week coaching and we'll see you next time on Slap and Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like That's that. Good. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs>